the Neon Confidential Podcast. Is this thing on? (laughs) Merry Christmas, happy holidays, whatever you may celebrate. I hope that you ate, drank, and were merry with friends, family, loved ones, or even solo. Welcome back to the show. It is the last episode of 2023, and we really wanted to end the year with a bang of an episode, and I think we succeeded with this one. We are dropping this episode the day after Christmas, and let me tell you why. Everyone remembers The Grinch, but not everyone remembers what The Grinch was about. You usually remember this grumpy, villainous character who lives up in the mountains, and he's a bit of this fable-like character to the town's people below. But not everyone thinks of the meaning behind the story of The Grinch, and that is that the most important message is that if you are hurt, that does not mean that you have permission to hurt others. It's about someone taking the time to understand how big of a heart The Grinch actually had, and that someone's hurt doesn't define them, and that people can change after all. And I could not think of a better person that demonstrates just that than our next guest, Perez Hilton. He didn't live in a cave in a mountain, but he did live in the Hollywood Hills, and he was the original voice of Hollywood. The OG web celeb, gossip columnist, media personality, world-class doodler, and really a reformed, wonderful man now who I'm so lucky to learn so much about through both reading his book, TMI, My Life in Scandal, and of course, getting to sit down and talk with him in this episode. If you have ever judged a book by its cover, if you have ever believed that people can be someone totally different at their core than what their personas project, this episode is for you. We talk about his life leading up to blogging at NYU, his acting career, being the OG celebrity blogger, his surrogacy journey that brought him his three beautiful children and what it's like to be a solo dad. And of course, there's so many celebrity insider moments throughout this whole episode, like his 32nd birthday, for example, when Katy Perry arrived on an elephant to sing him happy birthday with the most outrageous star-studded attendee list, and how he's attributed to changing the game for celebrity news and the way people now consume media online. We, of course, get into his regrets, his lessons, and his new life in Las Vegas. With that, please welcome Perez Hilton to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Perez Hilton, welcome to the Neon Confidential Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. And you know what? Before you arrived, I was trying to think how you and I got connected. And I can't remember. Was it Dana Roselli? Um, No, it was... I I may have reached out to go to one of your restaurants. Okay. Right. Because now you're doing Vegas content. Very organically, you know? Totally. I live here now and i'm so grateful to to call this home because i love vegas i've been coming here for 20 years and it wasn't until 2018 really that the idea of possibly moving here sparked and it took me five plus years to actually have the guts to make the move so that was actually the first thing i wanted to talk to you about i feel like a lot of people here in town feel like you just recently decided to move to vegas but we met when you were living in LA Mm -hmm. and you were spending summers here. So you've been going back and forth for a long time. It's not like all of a sudden, like you said, you said 2018, you decided. And what was like the pushing point for you to make the decision to move? The pushing point was my therapist telling me that giving me permission because I would not give myself 
permission to make this move because my, you know, the brain is a very powerful thing. And I had convinced myself that I had to stay in Los Angeles. And he said, no, just do it. If it's, if you really think you'll be happier there, why delay that happiness? Because I was doing all sorts of mental gymnastics. Like, oh, let me wait until I get my son into the really good high school here in Los Angeles. And then I can move because then at least if I go to Vegas and it doesn't work out, I can always go back and put him in that really good high school that I already got him into. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't make sense because my son is still, he's only 10 years old. So I would have had to wait many years to make the move. Yeah. And like pulling a kid up and transplanting them is difficult enough anyway. It's easier when they're younger. Absolutely. Exactly. And so was that because you felt like, I mean, being a celebrity gossip columnist is your occupation and you feel like LA is just more of a hot spot for that what you do is that kind of why i thought that you know that's where showbiz is but really showbiz is in vegas as well in a major way and getting even more so bigger every day you know mark everybody talks about mark Wahlberg moving here but it's more than just that and actually now that i've been in vegas for a while so much can be attributed and we have to give thanks to really the the Vegas Golden Knights and then after them the Raiders you know not just locally but for for tourists coming I've read that the demographic of what the Vegas tourist looks like keeps changing. You know, a lot of people used to come just to gamble, but folks are now coming in to go see Taylor Swift or to go see a game from their professional team. Often not the our team, but go there, watch their team. And exactly. Root, root for the opposing team. Right. I've been to Allegiant for the last, you know, two Raiders home games. And it's kind of half and half because there's so many tourists that are already coming here. They just plan their trips around when their home team's going to play here. And that's such a good point. Cause I've lived here for 12 years and I'm from Texas. We love football, you know, and like not having any sports teams here was really I knew it was to the detriment of the community because it really brings sports, brings people together, you know, brings community together. You all now have one thing in common. You have a home team to kind of root for. So I totally agree. Like sports, we can attribute to the Vegas Golden Knights too. But when I'm, when I started coming to Vegas in 2004, I would have never thought, oh, I could live there. Uh, in 2004, Vegas was so different in every way. I mean, the strip looked so different. What was popular was so different. And actually, I love that. Vegas reminds me, and this might seem like a stretch or weird, but I am from Miami originally, and I never loved it there because Miami's a lot like Los Angeles, and I never loved it there either. Mm-hmm. But Vegas reminds me of New York City in that there's so much to do in a small space. But Vegas, I think actually, now that I'm older, Vegas is better than Manhattan because you're stuck in Manhattan. But in Vegas, you can live in, you know, Henderson or live in Summerlin or even live in the middle of the city and you're not in in the center of the of the strip and the chaos and all of that. So you can go there whenever you want, but then you can be, you know, upstate. You're in the Hamptons uh, for your everyday life. I don't think people realize how small... Vegas is like you can be well it used to be before F1 traffic you, you <laughs> used to be able to get everywhere within 15 minutes and the other thing is by the way I just crushed through your book uh which is it was amazing oh. so now I like have all of the tea on your whole entire <laughs> life when I was listening a lot of the people that you are talking about in your book have residencies now in Vegas like after you'd already decided to move here which is so insane 
I know. I mean, I've been doing what I do since 2004 and I've helped a lot of artists that have gone on to become very, very popular. Totally. And I think anybody could probably take a guess at this, but just for people who are listening, tell us how you came up with the persona Perez Hilton. You have to remember back in 2004, Paris Hilton then was what Kim Kardashian was. Maybe not right now, but listen, Kim Kardashian is still on the A-list, but her level of fame isn't quite as hot heat as it was maybe, you know, prior to 2023. Everything has its season and a reason. Uh, And the Kardashians have had a phenomenal run. But Paris was that famous. 100%. In fact, I remember... I forget the exact year, but in the early 2000s, the Associated Press said, we're not covering Paris Hilton anymore because they were covering her so much. And then she went ahead and I think got arrested again or did something that was very newsworthy and their band didn't last very long. So when I started, I originally was using my real name, which is Mario Lavandera. It's a mouthful. And it quickly became aware to me that, you know, maybe I shouldn't use my real name. Like, it, it's probably a good idea to have uh, a nom de plume. Like a, like a pseudonym. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, before doxing was a thing, I was doxed. And that was one of the reasons that encouraged me to be a little bit more private with my information and myself. Uh, and it really helped me then at the, for, for a while there at the infancy of my career, having a character helped, you know, like, oh, you know, people don't like what I'm writing. It's OK, because it's just a character, which I then realized later was just like some weird dystopian, like, you know, huh. Jekyll and Hyde defense mechanism, because I really was the one doing and writing and saying those things. It wasn't a character. That's some BS that I... You know, maybe used. in terms of like escaping accountability, but yeah, like I've, exactly. I've heard that that's like a thing. It's like your stage name, like Beyonce does that when she gets Sasha on stage. Fierce, that she yeah. right. So <laughs> I totally get that, but we'll get into the rest of it later. But I totally understand what you're saying. So then you became Perez Hilton, and Perez came from where? You know, Perez came from trauma. He it it didn't occur to me until actually the process of writing my memoir that it might seem silly to people, but pop culture really saved my life and also became a crutch too. everything, depending on how you look at it could be a positive or a negative. My dad died when I was very young. It was the summer between uh, freshman and sophomore year of high school. That's tough. That's such a like impressionable age and where you still need your parents, you know? Yeah, And it was very sudden. It's not like I had time to mentally prepare for this that was going to happen. It wasn't cancer. He had an aneurysm. Mm. And uh, my grandfather also died seven days prior to that. And he lived with us. But, you know, he was in his 80s. So it was still sad for me. That was the first loss I had ever experienced. But then with my dad, it was on a whole other level. And my mom, now that I'm an old man in my mid forties and I have three children of my own. I have so much compassion for her. I know she was doing her best and also just trying to stay alive. You know, my mom, this is how crazy the mind body connection is. Mm -hmm. After my dad died, my mom almost instantly developed adult diabetes. You know, she went into this insane shock. She lost 
I forget how much weight her hair fell out. It was a total devastation for her. She lost her father and her and the love of her life uh, in, in the span days. of seven days. Yeah. So, you know, back then, and maybe even still today, in a lot of Latino communities, the concept of therapy is frowned upon. You don't really do it. It's like, oh, that's for the gringos. That's for the American folks, to therapy. Like in a lot of communities, maybe not even just Latinos, but a lot of minority communities, talking about your feelings isn't something that you do. So I never processed my dad's death. I buried myself in television. It became my babysitter and my comforter and uh, a crutch also because I never got, I never processed all of that, but it laid the foundation for who I would become. Like I started voraciously reading all of these celebrity magazines and listening to the radio and not leaving my room. I, I wasn't a sports kid. I was just all about watching Oprah or Arsenio Hall or Friends or whatever it was in the 90s, you know, because I wasn't happy in my life. I, and also in a way I wasn't even alive like I was but I wasn't really present in my life yeah I think grief affects everyone so differently and uh, you know it's an unfortunate tie that binds people you know even if you're handling it totally differently so I don't know what that's like to go through it with somebody under the same roof um but I can also confirm that in Latino culture not going to therapy is is a thing I lost my best friend who was from Guatemala when I was Oh my gosh, I think I was 20, 25 or 26. And his mother and I were so close after he passed away. For whatever reason, we just had this connection. Um, and she felt like she couldn't share the same like love with her other children. So it's mm. interesting that kind of like parallel. And I, I think too, her kids couldn't understand why we were so close. And there's really not an explanation. It's like, like I said, grief, it affects everyone so differently. And like the weight loss thing that you were talking about, she underwent something similar. Some people eat all of their feelings, you know, um, some people totally retract. Some people go out and try to, and, and try to just get rid of the feeling by not dealing with it, which maybe sounds like what you I mean, did I'm with thankful pop culture. That I, I'm thankful that, you know, I didn't turn to drugs or alcohol or truly destructive things right there's worse vices to have than yeah. tv yeah <laughs> you know but it's interesting because i in a way you are so impressionable when you're that age when you develop a really bad habit it locks and it takes so much and i actually i don't even know if in some instances you can unlock it for example, like I transferred that screen to another screen, my computer screen. Like I am more than a workaholic. Like I, I really think I am addicted to work, addicted to social media. And it's unfortunate because my job is social media. And it's like, sometimes I really want to take a break. Like, oh, it would be great to take a vacation and not check anything and not do anything, but I can't do that. <laughs> you talked about that in your final chapter of your book. You said that when you, you can't go to sleep unless you every all your emails are answered and I'm the same way and it's I think that's a rare quality you know and I understand when people say there there has to be a balance you have to put boundaries but the OCD thing comes into play like 
all of my notifications have to be clear. I can't have one red notification when people have emails that are like 300,000 oh emails. Oh my God, I know. It, just looking at it gives me anxiety. But look at all you've been able to accomplish. Like we're in this office that your hard work built, you have a team and you, 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 you started this alone without right. a partner, without any backing. Right. And that's what I tell my kids every day, you know, and I'm so thankful. I, I truly believe that a lot of my success can be attributed to being the son of immigrants and this Latino mentality, the crazy Cuban work ethic. My parents drilled it in me. It's like not just to work hard, but you have to work harder than everyone else. Right. And that's what I tell my kids. You know, we have the every day driving to school. I have them recite to me our family credo, like the eight most important things in life. And number one is family. And then number two is to work very hard. And if they don't include the word very i make them repeat it but now they, they got it it's so added. wait what are the other six number one is family number two is work very hard oh god i'm i'd say it in spanish oh. uh let me i'm trying to translate yeah yeah uh, we do it in spanish because i only speak spanish to my kids so number one that. is family number two is work very hard number three is listen and number four is be healthy Number five is don't lie. Number six is gratitude. Number seven is have fun. And number eight is breathe. And I feel I like, you know, there are little tools and little lessons in each one of those eight talking points that you can pull from. You know, it is important to have fun or breathe. And it could be interpreted in different ways. Breathe like, okay, make sure you're focusing on your health, you know, take a nap, whatever it might be. Um, and they're good reminders for me too. Like I literally took a nap today, which I don't often do, but I felt like I needed it. So uh, all right, let me listen to my body. Sleep is so important. And you were also talking about that at the end of the book. You're like, I sleep like four hours a night Still. and I am the same way. I've recently discovered obviously how horrible that is for your health. So, you know, I'll get by with a little bit of help from like, you know, CBD or CBN or whatever. It's not that I don't, it's, it's, I don't have any problems falling asleep. I just don't have enough time. Like that's how addicted you are to yeah. like the craft. Like, I, and I do believe that that's what makes people the best, you know what I mean? At what they do. But also when you were saying those, it's kind of like a modern 10 commandments. You know what I mean? Because it's way more relatable, especially the breath work part. But my dad also said he, he only had two. He said, don't ever lie and always try your best. And, and I've always stuck next to that. Like, I don't think I could lie if I tried because well, that's I one of would my, that's feel so uncomfortable. One of my eight, you know, I think that's really important. And, you know, I tell my kids the truth. I like to be honest with my kids and like, I don't just talk the talk. Like I walk the walk. I was like, you know, when you're older and I've put you guys through college, if that's what you want to do. If I have money left over, I'm going to budget and I'm going to start traveling the world again. <laughs> when, I'm, I love that. when I'm dead, I'm not going to leave you guys anything. <laughs> I mean, maybe if I at that point still own a home, then, you know, you guys can sell the home and split it. But other than that, I hope that my savings is close to none because that will also give them the drive to make something of themselves themselves. That's what I did. You know, if my kids have a great idea for this company or a startup or whatever, I'm like, awesome, get the funding or make it happen. Like I'm not going to put my money into that. My dad is the exact same way. Like he has not helped me with my business in any sense of the word advice. Yes. Yes. But monetarily, absolutely not. And even when I was growing up, like 
when I turned 16, you know, I lived in this area of Houston Northwest called Cypress, Texas, small town, but still there was wealthy people in the community. And so once everyone my age started turning 16, they were getting their parents old Mercedes old <laughs> with like a few years old. And so my dad said, you know, here's three grand and go find a car. And I should have been grateful for that, but I wasn't, I was a little brat oh. and I was like, well, everyone else is getting these Mercedes and whatever. But what that taught me is like how to be scrappy. I had to go into the yellow pages and find, you know, cars that were listed for that amount of money and try to haggle and do all of that stuff myself. You know, he didn't help me. He obviously gave me three grand and looking back, I'm like, Hey, what a brat. Cause some people don't even get that opportunity. You know, I didn't, I had a bicycle in Miami, which I think is one of the reasons why I didn't love it because Miami's like Los Angeles. You need a car to get around. Do your kids know what you do? Like, what do they, what do they think about what dad does for work? They know all the sorts, all the different things I do. Like they hear me when they're at home. It's not, they're not in school. There's a break. They hear me doing my podcast or they um, are aware of videos that I might make for social media. I think the website element, that's like the hardest for them to grasp because the concept of being a blogger is not that common anymore, actually. That's right. <laughs> but um, they know I have a website and they've seen me on television and all of these things. I was things. just about to ask, have they seen you on the reality TV shows that you've done? Yeah, we watched it. Actually, they were on one as well. We, I was on this Food Network show called America's Worst Cooks Celebrity <laughs> Edition. And spoiler alert, I ended up winning, which means I was the best of the worst. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's okay. I don't, I, I never l cooked for myself. I never learned how to cook and I'm not the best at it still. Like I, I, there might be a lot of other parents in the same boat. Like I'm a frozen foods dad, like a lot of chicken nuggets or this or that, or corn dogs or whatever it is. In your book, you said at one point you'd, I can't, I guess you were living in New York. It had to be New York. And oh you said God, you ate hot, hot dog diet. Yes. I remember this vividly. <laughs> it was the cheapest thing. I had no money. Hot dogs from the supermarket were very inexpensive. And I was always down for a deal. This was around the time of the first Shrek movie and there was green ketchup. So I was eating hot dogs Stop. and putting green ketchup on it. <laughs> That's definitely a core memory. It is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've had such a unique and wild life, especially, you know, it's like everyone kind of knows that already, but your book, I loved listening to it because again, I think for the population of people who knows you, people have such a narrow view of, of anyone. If I'm meeting someone for the first time, I don't know anything about their life. I don't know that their parents passed away. You spent a ton of time traveling overseas, mm -hmm. um, which I thought, I love that part of the book because I also lived in Argentina for Ooh. six months when I was in college. So it was a really great insight. And for anyone who hasn't, I would suggest that they read it. But don't do it my way because I, that my foreign trip, I spent six months in Madrid. That was the beginning of a bad chapter of my life because I was by then in college, I was a junior and I didn't have a lot of money to do a lot of things. That's when I started charging things on my credit card that I wasn't making money to be able to pay off every month. And the things started to accumulate. And then I got back from my 
semester in Madrid and I didn't want to be doing dorms anymore. So I got an apartment in the West Village. I went to NYU and this was the biggest mistake of them all. I mean, it should be a given, but I guess, you know, I wish in high school they taught financial literacy to children. 100%. Or or even like bring back um, shop, like, you know, teaching kids or young adults how to build things and make things with their hands. Maybe some schools do offer some kind of thing like that, but I think financial literacy, even home ec or whatever they used to call it, like to be able to cook for yourself, like life skills, totally, that would be invaluable. You know, so I I would hope it's a given, but it wasn't for me because I was dumb enough to do it. Getting a cash advance on your credit card. It's like the highest interest rate of them all. I think you said it was like 20% or something. I think it was more than 20%. I don't remember. So brutal. Like that's, that is one hole that like digging yourself out of that. So I was, I didn't dig myself out. I made the mistake, which I think, I think now I've learned that what I was doing was illegal. (laughs) I didn't know it at the time. (laughs) I think there might be, I, I think the term is like hang gliding or gliding or I don't know. Basically when I would max out a credit card, I would get a new one and do a balance transfer because that new credit card had a very low interest rate. And then I'd max out that other credit card and get another credit card. And I'm like, why do all these people now in hindsight, they're just giving me money in hindsight. I'm like, why are all these companies giving that dumbass kid a, a new credit card? Like, don't they see his credit score and this and that and the other, but eventually after enough years of doing that, I ended up filing for bankruptcy, which was a real pain in the butt to get out of that. Yeah. And so you didn't have your blog or anything at that time. So explain to everyone how you got started as a celebrity gossip columnist. Um, Obviously, coffee bean and tea (laughs) played a huge role. So let's let's go back to, I guess, your trek from Miami to Los Angeles. So, as I said, I went to New York first. I studied at NYU. I studied acting. Uh, did the, you hold, did you do speech classes? I, I did, yeah. You're very articulate when you speak. I, Some people might think I'm over-articulate. It bothers them. No, I love it. I'm like, you really, like, enunciate your words. It makes me kind of, like, stop and, like, want to do that also. <laughs> it just It's like a, just, just being gay. <laughs> I, think, I don't know. <laughs> So I got my degree in drama, which was a waste of money, really. Uh, I should have, in hindsight, if I, which I was, I was serious about it, but I should have gone to school in Los Angeles because here's one of the best. I love talking to young people because I love just giving advice and sharing my stories, my triumphs and my mistakes. And they can do with that what they want. You know, hopefully maybe if you tell 10 young people something, it might inspire one of them because people are still going to do whatever they want to do and they need to make their own mistakes, Mm -hmm. even with my kids. But my mom and I have a different school of thought on this. Like my mom thinks it's, it's, it goes back to the generational thing. She doesn't believe in talking about your feelings or even giving that much input. Like I will, like I will give my advice and then I could say, all right, well, at least I, I said what I needed to say. You said your piece. But I'm not going to push you into doing anything right. you know, either. You know, My son went to get a haircut with me recently. And I just think it's how young, old people talk to young people. They don't really know how to. My son's 10. And our wonderful hair guy, what, he just asked my son, well, what do you want to do when you're older? And my son said, I want to be in uh, a, what was it? A, um, 
a software developer, a software engineer, so, 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 okay. software developer, something like that. I'm like, really? That's news to me. <laughs> uh, a month ago, you said you wanted to be a lawyer, which, and, and I, I don't push them into anything. Like, I tell them all the time, I don't care what you do so long as you enjoy it because you're going to have to work really hard. That's right. You have to enjoy it. And, and I wish that that was more of an accepted thing, you know, because I grew up in a very small minded community where it's like you had to be a lawyer or a doctor or a politician. You know, my school was an all boy Jesuit school in Miami that breeded that kind of guy. And if you weren't that, you were considered a failure. Like my mom viewed me as a failure for a very long time because I wanted to be an actor. And then I'm a failed actor who happened to, to take a, a nice detour along the way. But actually in a full circle moment over the years, I've been doing more acting. So, and, I, and I'm trying to manifest even more acting going back to my roots. And I feel like too, if you are a strict if you're a strict parent, if you're like a helicopter parent, that makes people want to rebel even more. I'm not. You know? I'm not, yeah. Like, I let my kids fail. I think that's important, you know? Especially now here in, in Vegas, they're at a new school. Like, their L.A. school was a little too frou-frou for me, a little too soft. Like, they don't give them grades. They don't do any testing. I've never heard of that. Oh, my I God. Know. Yeah. No grades, just letters. Like... NP or, or what is it? NS needs support or P for progressing or oh whatever, or, or I for independent. Wow. Uh, you know, like that's I, a choice. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that it was that progressive. So the school they're at now is a traditional school. And, you know, my son is in fifth grade and they have a lot of expectations for a fifth grader, which they didn't at his old school. And I've gotten a couple of emails like, oh, this assignment is missing. And I'm like, why is this assignment missing? And like, I did it, but oops, I forgot to turn it in. Like, look at it. It's done. He showed it to me. It's done in my, in the, in the, in the book. Uh, he just didn't rip out the page and give it to the teacher. I'm like, well, mm. the teacher's going to think you didn't do it. Right. Cause you didn't turn it in. You yeah. Know? It's like, I'm disappointed. But anyways, I studied acting got a full scholarship to go to NYU because I was a dork in high school. That's and really impressive. Did very well, right. thankfully. Yeah. Uh, then I moved out to Los Angeles to be an actor. And what's interesting is, you know, I don't think a lot has changed, to be honest. Like some have, some things have changed, but not that much. You know, my like, like I mentioned, my real name is Mario Lavandeira, Mario Lavandeira. And I don't look like a Mario Lavandeira. So... I would get sent out for Latino parts and not book a single one because when a Hollywood casting director is going to hire an actor for a Latino part, they're going to hire somebody who does not look like me. Thankfully, there are s some exceptions to the rule, you know, now that we've seen um, like Ana de Armas, Cuban actress who's become pretty popular over the last few years. But for the most part, when they want to check that diversity box, they don't want a white presenting person which isn't that the epitome of you know like having someone that speaks spanish that maybe doesn't like that seems but it's so foreign to me because i grew up in miami understanding that to be a latino to be cuban you know i have family members that are very dark-skinned and then i have my mother who's fair with blue eyes or I grew up watching Gloria Stefan or this La the Latina Oprah. Uh, her name was Cristina Saralegui. Her TV show was Cristina and she was blonde with blue eyes. So I always knew, you know, we're all different shades. And unfortunately, still in 2023, casting 
and, and Hollywood likes to keep people in boxes. Que lastimo. <laughs> <laughs> but no, when I lived in Argentina, a lot of Argentinians are blonde hair and blue eyes. Well, because a lot of them are... Me of German descent. Right. Same in Brazil. There's a lot, a large German population in Brazil also. Mm -hmm. So I moved out to LA. I should have gone to college there because this is what I would tell uh, young people. Always, every single semester, starting your freshman semester, intern somewhere. 100%. I tell everybody that. By the time I graduated college, I had three internships under my belt. And I immediately got a job at a place where I was interning. Like it, there, my, the job search was not a struggle at all for yeah, me. Yeah, no, I would say I would say start interning the very first semester. And even if they want you to stay, don't intern someplace new every single semester, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year, and senior year. Then you have over ten groups of people that you know that you can then help start building your network because really it's all about who you know right? our mentorship styles are, have to be the same like even when i have people come in here for internships i will tell them like okay your time here is almost over and and, and it's kind of like they look disappointed and i'm like you should go work for an agency a nonprofit, and then we're a boutique firm just to see what you're gonna jive with yeah and just to get more people in your address book you know, right. it's really important so I went out there to be an actor and I was always very practical I didn't want to get a job as a waiter or a bartender so my first job in LA was working at a PR agency I know when I heard that in the in the book I was like this makes so much sense <laughs> I would write all the press releases because I've always been a good writer and it was a like like not like yours though because you you have an office. <laughs> this boutique PR agency was working out of this guy's apartment in West Hollywood. I was horrified. This part of the book. Oh my and, god. And um, I, I have a lot of empathy for him though because a lot of people struggle. It became apparent. It, my coworker. It was just two two college kids freshly graduated that were working there. Me and this other kid. It became apparent pretty soon that this guy had a hardcore drug problem. A, a crystal meth. I don't even know if they call it crystal meth anymore. A meth problem. <laughs> he was a meth head. <laughs> he was, but but you know, in the gay community, uh, they use it a lot for sexual purposes, and and then he'd be bringing in guys doing drugs and having sex in the other room of his apartment, and it was just so traumatic, so wild. And uh, thankfully, I, I I was like, I got to get out of here. How old were you at this stage? Twenty four, because oh, I stayed in New God. York for two years after graduating from college, mm -hmm. and eventually I made it out to L.A. I tried to do it in New York, but I can't really sing Broadway caliber. And if you want to be a working actor in New York City. It helps if you're able to also do Broadway. Right. Uh, so I, I left that job. I got a job working at a, a gay nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't love it because it just felt very corporate, very stuffy. And then I left that job after about a year to go work at a gay magazine. And while working at the gay magazine is when I started my blog. And this was like the Paleolithic age forever ago, 2004. Like really the year that social media was birthed. You know, in 2004, that's when Facebook began. But if you're anybody's old enough to remember, at first, Facebook was just for college students. Right. And it had to be invite only. Like a lot of other ones have done that model as well. Like uh, invite only at the beginning. It's uh, exclusivity, scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, MySpace was around then. I never even joined MySpace because... You didn't? No. Wow. Because I, I was on... 
I think they don't get enough credit. I was on the precursor to MySpace, this one social media site called Friendster. Mm-hmm. Which, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard of Friendster. Yeah, it, it was the same concept. Uh, and then MySpace came along and was very popular for a while. I heard that Tom lives in Vegas. Do you know that oh, information? I didn't Good know that. Good old MySpace Tom. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he, I think he's working as a photographer now. Really? That's the dream. Like, I don't have FU money. I probably would have if I didn't have children. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I don't regret it. Obviously, I love my kids and I'm so thankful that I was able to do the surrogacy process, which was very expensive. I know. I want to talk. I want to like dive into that. And also too. raising kids and having all these other mouths to feed or like even things you don't even realize. Like even if you have insurance, things are so expensive. Like going to the optometrist. Okay. The optometrist visit is, is covered, but then my kids need glasses. Then the glasses are not covered. And the glasses are $200. It's like, oh my God. Totally. So in 2004, I discovered blogs and that seemed fun. Like, oh, let me just try this. And I think what set my site, mine apart was prior to me, most people were using blogs really just like online diaries. It was like their journal, very first person. Like, oh, I went on a date and I had an awful date or whatever it is. They like talked about themselves. Exactly. Right. And I never was interested in talking about myself. I, I right away, like from the very beginning, I was like, well, let me just talk about celebrities because that's what I was naturally curious about. And a lot of them are just, you know, very colorful. Let's say it like I that. I thought that was in your book. You talked about that when you worked at the gay magazine and then you started your blog that I couldn't believe they let you do that. Did they just not know what a blog was? Like, how well, I don't that think not... I told them. Yeah, I, I, I just started <laughs> yeah. and it was so new. Like, it was just a hobby. It never occurred to me that I needed to tell them. Right. It was just something that you were doing on the side for yourself. Yeah, a yeah. little hobby. I never thought I could make a career of it because nobody was. Like, I, I give, I've given myself this title, but I really do believe that I am the original influencer. Like, yeah. What did they used to call the web? Web celeb. A web celeb. <laughs> you are the OG web celeb. Yeah. You know, I started making money on the internet and also, you know, making myself a personality as a result of it. You know, like it's still interesting to me that I've been able to achieve D-list fame by talking <laughs> about famous people, which people do, you know, like look at Howard Stern. Like he's just a radio DJ, but he ended up becoming a very famous radio DJ. I feel like it's because you, you really intertwined yourself with the celebrities. Like you were going to the red carpet. Yeah. Were I was you traveling invited? all over the world, going to places that I knew celebrities would be at. Like I would go to the Super Bowl, even though I didn't really care about football, but I'm like, it's always the hot, hot place to be. Cause there's right. all these parties or I went to the Cannes film festival one year and uh, Paris Hilton, I had met her by that point, and she's actually really smart because she could have sued me and forced me to change my name, but she never did. And that's strategic on her part. She was using me. <laughs> and then, so you guys were like using each we other. Were using absolutely, like I back then at the beginning, you know. So, that makes sense, though. It's like a nice copacetic relationship. Yeah, you know, in 
Paris Hilton's really done a phenomenal job of rebranding because in the early 2000s, she was this quote, wild party girl and very problematic. She's caught, she's been caught on video saying really awful things, which I don't need to repeat because, right. you know, I don't, I've made mistakes. She's made mistakes. I don't think she's that person anymore, but she's, she and her team, I would say about three or four years ago, whenever she released her last documentary, that was all very calculated um you know because actually paris hilton's done like three or four documentaries right yeah she's done multiple documentaries but the last one is where she opened up about being the victim of abuse when she was in high school at that boarding school and that's right um now we see her as not just a dj but also an entrepreneur which is she's always pushed that but it that that documentary really was the beginning of the the major rebrand for her and now in 2023 i would make i think she's seen as beloved i would say i mean will people grow and evolve yeah. like it would be weird if she was the same person that she was in the early 2000s like you guys were mm. all so young Some people right? don't really grow and evolve like i guess that's true look too at, I don't want to get political, but look at Donald Trump. Has he really grown or evolved? That's true. He's not grown or evolved at all over the last four decades yes. that I'm aware of. So rephrase, like if you're open, yes. if you're open-minded and, and, you, she, and you learn lessons and you, you know, put those into effect. And what I love about Paris is that she's really kind. Okay. She is. She, I've met her before. She's yeah, great. Yeah. Some, you know, some people also criticize the Kardashians, but they're all kind too. They're nice. Are they somewhat some people might say they're shallow or oh, who cares okay sure they're shallow but they're not nasty people they're not mean they're not bad i totally agree with you like that is what counts yeah you know yeah so go back to where you were when you moved to la and you started your blog how did you get to be intertwined with all of these a-list celebrities so i started just as a hobby not thinking anybody would read it i remember all i did to promote it was put a bulletin post up on friendster okay okay that's the, the social friendster media, tie. yeah okay. the social media site that was pre my or yeah it was pre myspace and eventually people started reading it because nobody else was doing that you know back in 2004 People Magazine and Us Weekly and all the celebrity magazines, they weren't breaking any celebrity news on their websites. It was all just go to people.com to sign up for the magazine. They were placeholders to get subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And I kind of changed help. I don't ever like to say I changed the game, but, but I you played, did. If it's I, fair, you know, I played a part yeah. in changing the game. I, I, I helped change how people consume media and the expectations and, you know, the immediacy of it, you know, because as soon as I saw something, like if, if the paparazzi sent me photos and I saw pictures, like I could talk about it right away. I didn't have to wait a week. Cause you're, that's what I was going to say. You're an individual, not a corporation. So there was no hierarchy. It's like you got the stuff and you just regurgitated or it. Like I remember one of the first stories I broke my friends, back then used to a lot of them worked at new line cinema and their old office was on robertson boulevard in los angeles and lindsay lohan got into a car accident a hit and run i remember <laughs> that but actually she abandoned her car there i remember that she it, like ran on foot didn't yes, she? yes <laughs> yes you remember that i oh remember all of this so my friends who worked 
like literally steps away from where Lindsay did this, went out and they started taking photos and they sent me the photos. Was it a white Mercedes? Why I, do I remember I that? I don't remember okay. exactly the, the kind of car it was, but yeah, like as soon as something happened, I could, I could, I could get it out there. And also how I talked about celebrities was really different. I think the norm back then was very, you know, they're larger than life, very reverential. And I talked about celebrities like they were just normal people. And maybe I went a little too hard. I Not maybe. I went a little too hard on knocking them down, humanizing them. Uh, I regret that. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've done the apology tour. It was like the, yes, <laughs> it was like the doodles, right? That was like what I remember most about yeah, your blog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the love dots, if you want to call them that, and other things. You know, it was very dumb juvenile but also it was clever marketing totally if somebody saw one of my photos that were doodled on they knew exactly where that came from but then didn't celebrities want to befriend you so that you didn't do that yeah. to them yeah and well yes and no um like i guess the better question is like how did you get to the point where people were seeking you out, like those people that would, would send you the photos. It's like, they just knew you had a blog. Cause I feel like, you know, in life it's everything's about who you're connected to and like the timing of stuff. It so how did that go? Were, people were reading my website and enjoying it and everybody wants to be a part of it. Aha. Uh -huh. Totally. That yeah. makes, that makes everybody sense. Everybody wants to be a part. And I wouldn't just put up anything. Like I, st even back then, when it was just me, I still always took what I did seriously. So I needed to make sure that something was real or legit. Um, and I start to cultivate sources and relationships with people like, oh, that person works at this restaurant. Like those were the best ones too, because like, oh, I really know that person's being real with me. It's not just like somebody making something up. Like, oh, I know that person works here. That person works there and they saw this or at the club. Like I, I had, even before I moved here, I had a lot of good Vegas insiders that were friends of mine i bet and so was your phone just ringing non-stop like people were just calling to give you information yeah it still is <laughs> and then that's crazy and then talk about the coffee bean i feel like i feel like that coffee bean because you explained in the book that you had like the table that was yeah, right yeah. by the outlet because there was one outlet one. <laughs> i'm like i feel like they need to make that like a tourist attraction <laughs> Like your, your little chair that was in that coffee bean. You know, when I was in LA at the very beginning of my career as Perez, I was so poor. I, for the first year in Los Angeles, didn't even have a car. It was like flashbacks to living in Miami. I had my bicycle and I would bike around LA everywhere on, on, on my little bicycle. Uh, eventually I got a car, a used car. It was like a Honda Civic that was real cheap. And my first job was at this PR agency. Then I worked at the gay nonprofit. Then I worked at the gay magazine. Gay don't pay. <laughs> oh, no. Gay don't pay. So I was never able to really make enough to save. I was living paycheck to paycheck as so many young people are. Mm -hmm. And I was living in an apartment. And when I moved in, they wanted to charge so much money to come and have somebody set up the internet for you. And they said, well, you can set it up for yourself for free. But it might surprise you that I'm a tech idiot. Meanwhile, like, your son wants to be a software engineer. <laughs> he's so different from me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I am not 
you know, prone to be able to be good at fixing this or that or the other. Like my sister got that gene. She's real good at all of those How things. Funny. I'm not. So they, I'm they, the creative type. For sure. So they tell you it's going to cost us money and you're, you're like, I'm not doing it myself. So I just decided, you know what? Let me just go down the street. Literally, I was half a block from the coffee bean and they had Wi-Fi there. So every day I would sit outside the coffee bean at like 4.30 in the morning before they would even open, which now I think about it. I'm like, you're an idiot because that was really dangerous. Like, sure, it's West Hollywood, but still, you know, anything could have happened that early in the morning. Uh, I would be there at 4.35 before they would open. I think they would open at 6, if I remember. So I was there for a while before they'd open because the Wi-Fi still worked outside. I had to be on East Coast time, even though I was in L.A. You were, like, committed. I bet you the staff showed up and was like... Here he is. <laughs> no, yeah, eventually, I don't think they liked that I was working there every day because people, as my popularity grew, I started having all of these tourists come visit me. And celebrities. And celebrities and process servers giving me lawsuits. <laughs> that was like legit your office. It was, yeah. Also in the book, there's a part where you say that you had a relationship with Amanda Bynes. Yes, it's so crazy. I don't want to use the word crazy. It's so shocking to me the trajectory of amanda Bynes because i could have never predicted it never well she said that quote in the book it stuck out to me where she said y'all were talking about something that had recently happened in la and she kind of rolled her eyes and she's like this place she said if you're not already crazy it'll make you crazy and obviously we now can follow the like you said the trajectory of what's going on with her but what do you think she meant by that at the time like do you think she was like foretelling her own fate? The brain is a very powerful and complex thing. Mm -hmm. 98 out of 100 people might respond a certain way to a certain thing, but two out of 100, the chemistry might be different. So they'll respond in a very different way. I don't obviously know for sure, but from what I've read and from what I understand, it really was marijuana that began like evolution or the i know i'm trying to think of a safe word and actually i i think i'm the same way too like i don't i've tried marijuana i hate it Mm -hmm. like i don't respond well to it you know um in la i was gifted a box of weed products (laughs) because that's legal yeah and there were gummies there and i'm like oh i haven't done this in forever let me try a half Mm-hmm. I took a half of a weed gummy. The suggested dosage was a full gummy. I took totally. a half mm-hmm. and I made the mistake of going out to dinner with a friend that night. I was like, I was so paranoid. Sayonara. Like, People are looking. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. I was so, I was, I, I, that's my normal response. That's why I don't do it. Like I don't, it, my body, like I'm a, I'm, I'm a great drinker. I'm a fun drinker. Like, but weed is not for me. And I think, you know, some people like Amanda Bynes, if you're, if it's not for you, like, (sighs) but don't you think that also, you know, in addition, and also there's underlying mental health issues. Like certainly marijuana can be looked at as a gateway drug for people. I personally love inedible (laughs) and I, I usually do one, you know, a few times a week to go to sleep. Like 
but I've trained my body that that means it's bedtime kind of situation. I don't go out and interact with the world, you know, but oh don't, God, I, I, uh, there's, I had the worst sleep. I would sleep. laugh at everything. I would just, <laughs> I had the worst sleep when I took that half of a gummy. You did see it affects one of my other friends like that too. He can't do it. Cause he'll be up all night. He'll go down rabbit. I, yeah. I had, the wor- I had scary sleep. It was bad. <laughs> so, but don't you think that especially you covering all of these celebrities throughout the course of your life, basically decades don't you think that there's something to be said with the age that people become famous Mm. yes and no i mean it all depends on who you are and your upbringing i think the bigger issue is not the age of the person when they become famous but the support system around that person yeah look at taylor swift she's been famous since she was 15 or 16 years old but her family was already wealthy, so they didn't need her to be successful for them to eat. Wow. But a lot of other people, like Demi Lovato, she's talked about it, how that relationship is complicated because she was the breadwinner for the family. That's such an interesting and, and perspective. And look at Britney Spears, too. That's same, the first person I was thinking about. Yeah, same scenario. And it's sad because I still think now, in, in 2023, Brittany doesn't have a single person in her life who loves her just no strings attached. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's still using her or profiting off of her or was until recently. I think perhaps maybe the only one that wasn't is her sister and she's still estranged from her sister. Right. That's got to be. And so that's that is such unique perspective that it has to do with your support system. And even, you know, I remember when you covered Britney's performance at the VMAs, just a hot take of my own. When I remember watching that on TV, I grew up in, I was a cheerleader and we would memorize her dances from her music videos. And we would compete against, you know, at cheer camp or whatever, we would compete against other cheerleaders with her, these dance routines. Cause she was that iconic. She, we looked up to her in this way that like, she has a very special place to a lot of people. But for me, the dance element was she was, you couldn't touch her. So this was 2007 and the VMAs were in Vegas. And prior to the performance, she was like literally the night before she was out partying. Um, but you could tell I, when I was watching it, I just thought, cause everyone was like, this is her moment. This is the comeback. There was all this drumming up of like, she's <clears throat> back. And then of course, everyone sees the performance and it and was just I, and so I regret, heartbreaking. And I regret my coverage because I went way too hard. I, I have a lot of regret with a, for a lot of things that I did in the past. And I think um, I understand why a lot of people still don't like me. Because, but, but also, you know, I did really awful things when I was younger, but that doesn't define me. At least not for me. It does for others. Um, and a lot of people want to keep me in the prison cell of the, of the past, but I don't live there anymore. And you have the key to the prison cell that people put you in and no one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. And so I think it's weird. It it would be bizarre if you stayed stagnant throughout, you know, you stayed the same person. And what's also interesting is if in this day and age, I still behaved like I did back then, it would still work. It would still be successful. Why do you think that is? Because people like controversy. Yep. Controversy gets attention. I would get way more attention if I was as controversial as I used to be. Right. Where was that switch 
that happened for you. I don't feel like a lot of people know that you've like reformed in a way. Yeah. I, I think mean, that people still associate people, you with the old, yeah. the way that you were. And so explain what happened when you kind of, was it like a switch that was flipped where you're like, I'm going to be different. It really kind of felt like that. You know, one of my favorite things to do is once a year, if not more, it's like the Bible to me. <laughs> I'll go and I'll watch the final episode of the Oprah Winfrey show. Wow. It, it's not, it was not the episode where she was at the United Center and Beyonce performed and Kristen Chenoweth performed. The, that was the penultimate show. The very last episode of the Oprah Winfrey show, which ran for 25 years, was her by herself talking to the studio audience and the viewing audience and basically sharing all of the most important life lessons that she had learned up until that point. And one of the things that she said, and it's one of the eight talking points that I have for my children is just listen, like really listen, the universe, God, your instinct, your intuition, whatever you want to call it, the answers are there. And if you don't listen, the universe or God will speak louder. And if you purposely keep ignoring that voice, eventually the universe is gonna smack you upside the head. And that's what happened with me. You know, I had deluded myself and really bought into the concept of this character and the Jekyll and Hyde persona. And eventually I had a brick to the head, which was in the fall of 2010, there was this rash of young gay people that were committing suicide. And we had never seen anything like that before. And thankfully, we've never seen anything in th that volume since then. Uh, but this movement was birthed out of that real painful period. Um, this journalist named Dan Savage created this campaign called It Gets Better. Very simple concept older folks making videos directed at young people and sharing their stories about it gets better. And I think I got a press release about it the day he launched that campaign. And I was the first public figure to make an it gets better video. And the response that I got shook me to my core because in my mind, you know, in this time of darkness, I'm doing something to shed light to, to be positive. But, the overwhelming majority of comments called me out. They said, how dare you? How dare you make an It Gets Better video? You are a hypocrite. You are a bully. You are part of the problem. Wow. And I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm not. But then, I, but then like almost instantly, like this, something just melted away. And I'm like, it's not who I am, but it's who I've become. So it is who I am in this moment. And I need to change that because it's not... It's not who I am or it's not who I want to be. I don't want to be a, a bully or part of the problem or a hypocrite. And listen, I still will call things out, but I can do it in a way that's not purposefully cruel, nasty, mean, or hurtful. And it's so interesting to me to see the evolution of free speech and the evolution of thought. A lot of young people are of the school of thought these days that a critical opinion that is voiced publicly is bullying. Mm -hmm. Now yeah. you're soft. Like you can disagree with people. Mm -hmm. You can have a critical opinion 
so long as you don't express it in a purposely nasty, mean, cruel, or hurtful way. That's what I was going to ask is how do you check yourself? Do you feel like it was like a, you have a skill you had to sharpen? It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. You don't have to insult somebody's intelligence. You don't have to, you know, denigrate their looks. You don't have to, you know, do all of these superficial, shallow, dumb, purposely nasty, mean high school things. Yep. Uh, which a lot of people still do, especially when you talk about politics. That's one of the things I love about Vegas. I feel like politics still matter, but I feel like in LA, people talked about it a lot more and I don't want to talk about it. Well, I mean, we're a swing state too. So it's like kind of 50, 50, Yeah. but also like I'm the same way. Once, once someone starts talking about politics and you can tell that they're like super left or they're super right, I'm checked out. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the middle. Out. Like I'm a I centrist and I, and I, and I also feel like. I left that in LA and, and, um, I got burned by Donald Trump and politics. Like I, I wish there was more than two parties in this country, Same, but they're not. And, um, you know, why can it work in the UK where they have like 10 parties? I don't know how many they have there, but they make it work. I, we, I wish it was more about issues and causes. Cause in some ways I'm very conservative. And then in other ways I'm very liberal. And I'm it's the like, same. I kind of take what I need from each party and I'm, I just agree. But with I'm not represented. Aspects. Like I, who's representing me? You know, no one. That's right. Yeah. It's a bummer. So do you, maybe eventually I'll run for office. I know I was when, I actually, when I, you were talking, I was just like Perez for president. <laughs> I know I would, I'm going to manifest this maybe in like 20 years time after I've paid my dues in Vegas and given back more and helped this way or that way, or the other, like Perez mayor of Las Vegas. I love it. <laughs> I mean, I love it. So talk about that though. What are the differences between LA and Vegas? Oh like you, God. do you, so much I happier feel like the here. community totally so much more com- well, there embraced is, you. There is community here. I don't really think there is community in LA. I mean, there is, if like, I don't know, a part of your school community or if you're like in the yoga community or this or that or the other, but community is really lacking in Los Angeles and here it's thriving. Yeah. Like, I, I like even me as an observer, like seeing how people that others might consider competitors, like uh, you or another publicist or whatever, like people help each other. And it doesn't matter if you're quote unquote competitors or journalist friends of mine that, oh, did you hear that they're hiring for that job and I didn't get it, but you should apply like things like that. Like that doesn't exist in LA. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is a smaller city. And even the people that you don't like, I think you're kind of forced, not really, but it helps. Um, you're more civil here because you're going to run into those people. That's right. Cause it's such a small exactly. town. So I mean, it's better to be civil. I love Vegas. I love the people. The people are really what makes Vegas great. And also the fact that it's smaller and less commuting, even though I'm sure the locals that have been here a while don't love all the traffic, but it's a lot less traffic than LA. <laughs> exactly. So the, uh, and we talked about this. We went to dinner at Flanker for your daughter, Maite's birthday. Yes. And you and I talked offhand about this, but I took an interest in specifically you being a single dad and your journey to get there because something that I, and I haven't talked about this with anybody except for you uh, and like two of my other friends, 
I've been talking to my therapist about being a single mother and having children on my own. So I wasn't planning on talking to you about that, but I was just looking at your beautiful mm. daughter. Maite is your youngest. Yeah, She's so cute. I think you have a very unique parenting style. And so can you explain to people when you decided your journey for being a single parent and what that looked like? You know, I always wanted to be a dad. It wasn't a question of if, it was more a question of when. And that when for me was when I was prepared for my career suffering as a result of having children. This is like exa- I, my exact you know, and, same thought and process. And I was very selfish for a while. Like I'm not ready yet. Like I, my career was hot, you know, it was like I'm on TRL and I'm co-hosting MTV New Year's Eve and I'm doing this and I'm traveling all over the world. I'm going to the uh, Australia Music Awards and I'm going to the Brit Awards in the UK and all of this stuff. And eventually, you know, in 2010 is when I made the change to be more positive person professionally. And also that happened, it happened a couple of like a year and a half after I began my personal health journey. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the healthier I became, the happier I became. So it was like a slow process of honoring that which was inside of me. And I knew I always wanted to do it and letting go of fear, you know, it's natural to be afraid, but, uh, yeah. I would say my career probably did suffer somewhat after having kids and that's okay. Right. Cause it was, I, it felt like the right time. For yeah. You. I mean, you'd accomplished so much like even yeah. all those award shows really quick. This is going to be a fun interjection. Can you please talk about your, I think it was your 32nd birthday specifically when Katy Perry oh arrived on God. an elephant. <laughs> That to was... sing happy birthday to you. I'm like reading this in your book. I'm like, this guy's life is so unique. That was the best birth. That was not even the best birthday party. The best party that I ever went to in Los Angeles in 20 years was one that I threw for my 32nd birthday. It was at the Paramount Studios lot. Katy Perry showed up on an elephant and sang happy birthday for me. And she got all dressed up. Some of the... Who now has a residency in Vegas. Yeah. Some of the attendees were Justin Bieber, Lindsay Lohan, John Stamos. Everybody was there. Uncle Jesse. Everybody was there. And then I had... um, Eve perform, the rapper. Yeah. I had Leona Lewis perform. I had Liza Minnelli perform Unreal. at my birthday party. Like iconic, iconic. Oh, I know. Like, and I got to have dinner with her the night before. Like so special. Why do you think that all of these celebrities like trusted you? Like where did that, how did those they relationships? Did it. it was just, you know, I was really hot then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, I could give them a lot of attention. Wow. They were using me and that's okay. I realize it now. And um, like Katy Perry, she and I were friends and then we kind of slowly drifted apart because it's hard to maintain a friendship with somebody that I had to cover the way that I had to cover her, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but whenever I see her, we chat and it's like, Hey girl, what's up? Like, cause she also, she, I played a big part in, helping her at the very beginning of her career because she had been dropped and she was about to be dropped again. And I started, I put her music on my website that wasn't even released yet 
And then her label saw that and they're like, oh, maybe we should not drop her. <laughs> Wasn't there a time, like what, what was the peak of PrezHilton.com? How many unique monthly visitors were you getting to your site? Well, the peak I was getting like eight, 10 million a day. That is wild. Yeah. Eight to 10, because back in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, I didn't have much competition. Right. And also there was a lot less social media. So there weren't as many distractions for people. I didn't, you know, people went to my website and I was around way before TMZ and then TMZ came around and then it was Perez and TMZ. Didn't you leak some of Britney Spears' songs from an album? More than Britney. I leaked everybody's music. How did that, but how did that happen? Like, how did, did people just send you? Yeah. Or it might not even been like that. Like I, I might've seen it on a message board and then I, and then, you know, the reach for that was real small, but then I, I shared it and every year, the messenger. To, yeah. Yeah. So I got sued so many times by so many people, you know, I, I, I have a shit ton of regrets, but that's one of them too. Cause I wasted so much money in legal bills. Like, Oh my I ha- God. I've been sued before. Um, I, ca- I counter sued. Thank you. Um, but one of my clients actually Tony Shea at the time oh. said, you, well, he's the one that said you need to counter sue. You need to fight back. You need to send a message that people actually, can't treat you like this. I leaked something Tony Shea told me really, once, and he, I think was not pleased, but uh, he doesn't love the spotlight or he didn't love the spotlight. But I never said who told me, but now I could say, yeah, no <laughs> it was longer what he us. told. Yeah. He, he's no longer with us. It, it was, and it's not even like a huge deal, but like, you know how, so, you know, people in Vegas, if you ruin their plan, I get it. If you mess up their plan, it's going to ruffle feathers. Yeah. So this was, you know, um, prior to it being called the Bacht Theater at Planet Hollywood, it was called the Zappos Theater. And right. Tony Shea was the head honcho over at Zappos. And he was aware that Gwen Stefani was going to do a residency and it hadn't been announced yet. And and I he told me. But he didn't say it was off the record. I didn't know it was off the record. Um, I remember when he brought her to Container Park because they have the Mantis outside. Yeah. And she, they played one of her songs and the Mantis was firing to the song. So he wasn't great at like thinking that it's like he just thought people would never find out. But he was friends with so many influential people that, of course, that's going to happen. So, yeah. So I published that Gwen's doing a Vegas residency. And then there was a little drama afterwards. So what he said to me was, you don't know that you've made it until somebody sues you. And so he... Well, I really made it. (laughs) And he said, this is not the last time this is going to happen to you. Just like a heads up. Now I've gotten like, it's so frustrating because there's like, there are people who are professional litigants. There are people whose job it is just suing people yeah like this woman like i don't even want to say it because i don't want like to, to encourage copycats yeah. but like some people like this one blind woman goes around suing webs thankfully it got tossed out recently after i spent enough money um but this one blind woman sues people sues different websites uh, oh that's not accessible for people with uh, impairment is sight impairment issues i'm like wow but my site is, but we at the time had like some quiz that was by a third party. Basically it's another ad model. Like Mm -hmm. you take a quiz, take this quiz, take this fun uh, trivia game or whatever. And it was just an ad thing. And that part wasn't. That part wasn't for the here, for the visually impaired and so stupid, but wow. But yeah. um, 
I, 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 you know, if I had not gotten into all those legal troubles, I probably would have a few money in the bank now. Wow. It was that many. Like how many times have you been sued? Do you oh, know? Oh God. Can you? I, I, that would actually be a really interesting book one day. Like all of my lawsuits, I got sued by every. I got sued by Britney's record label for leaking one of her songs. I got sued by Universal Pictures for leaking this photo. This is actually how messed up I was. It was, and I was too. But there was a French magazine that published an unauthorized image of Jennifer Aniston in a movie that she made. Mm-hmm. Was it called The Maid or something like that? I don't know. But basically, Jennifer Aniston was topless in the movie. And it didn't end up in the movie. But somehow they got the picture. It's like the paparazzi's. No, I think it was like a still. I don't know. Somehow they leaked it to this French magazine. The French magazine published it. And then I published a scan of the image from the French magazine. Okay. But it had writing on it. You could tell it was from this French magazine. Universal Pictures sued me and not the French magazine. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been sued by a lot of people. And lawsuits are not fun. Like, no. the mental toll oh. it takes on you is really messed up. It's hard to focus on, almost, you know, anything else. Especially when you have to get to the... But most lawsuits are settled out of court. Right, right. And cost a lot of money and... Um, yeah. So how do you think that your journey and people's perception has, has shaped who you are today? Oh gosh. Um, people's perception has shaped who I am today in that I, I still carry a lot of baggage with me. Mine is just very public, but everybody has baggage and nobody's right. perfect. I think people's perception of me has made me a lot more empathetic to others. You know, I give people a lot of grace, like, especially if they're young or this or that, or like they're struggling, you know, it's like even like everything, like I don't even, I don't even use the term hot mess anymore. Cause like that doesn't seem appropriate to me. Like that person's not a hot mess. They're struggling. They're going through it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a lot more empathetic for everybody and even myself, you know, like I'm very hard on myself. So I'm trying, I'm a constant work in progress, giving myself more grace and compassion and understanding that I'm doing my best. Right. You know, it's really hard being a single father of three and also financially supporting my mother as well. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And we didn't even finish talking about your kids, but I feel like you've instilled a lot of the lessons that you've learned in your kids. And I could see that even from like the brief dinner that we had at Flinker with your daughter. But so when you decided that you were going to be a single dad, what did that journey look like for you? Because when you told me the process, I mean, I had no idea my mind was kind of blown. So I kind of want other people to hear. Well, I used an agency because there are... You know, I'm a, I'm a believer of, um, if you're not good at something, don't try to do it badly, Right. <laughs> get help from somebody who is good That's at it. That's right. That's right. And especially with my firstborn, the law was so different back then, you know, still in 2023, there are some states that don't allow surrogacy. And then there are other states that do allow surrogacy, but you would never want to have a child there like your home state of Texas, because let's say the the surrogate uh, who has no biological connection to the child, the surrogate could be carrying your child that was your sperm or your egg with somebody else's sperm or egg. 
and that woman says, you know, I want to keep this child. You'll probably will get the child eventually, but she might have that kid for months. Oh my God. If, if Thankfully, that's the exception to the rule. Like that doesn't often happen, but you right. need to prepare for worst case scenario. That's why you go to states that, you know, where surrogacy is very common. And thankfully, I used this agency that took care of everything, not just finding the surrogate, but also obviously finding the egg donor. Take, they have like a, their own lawyer that handle all of the paperwork with um, the hospital before you got there. And also my, with my firstborn, I had to talk to some independent observer who, even though it was my child, my DNA, I had to convince this person that my own child should be given to me after birth. It's just a formality. It's like an adoption. Based, kind of. It don't, yeah. they, don't, they don't do that anymore. And I had to show up at the courthouse in Los Angeles. And it was just like a... What a process. It was just like a, a show. Uh, Meanwhile, people are like knocking people up left and right. I know. I had to really work for it. <laughs> so how did you choose the egg donor? Because sure. that's something that I've been terrified about i mean everyone's like just freeze your eggs just freeze like that's a solution but like i think we've all at this point i'm going to use courtney kardashian as, as an example that doesn't always work like sometimes you can freeze your eggs and then they won't survive and then you just you know i don't, I don't want to say wasted but you just invested 10 grand and you don't get the child out of it so i've been considering going and picking out a sperm donor and you shared your experience with me where you mm -hmm. picked out the egg donor so what was important to you while you were making that choice okay there was a couple of things that were important for me um it's interesting because the agency that i used had this vip donor list and i didn't pick mine from that basically the vip donor list was all of these former beauty pageant queens. Like, I could tell. When you first just, said that, I was like, oh, they must have been young and had like creme de la creme crop or something. But like, no, there was like all solely based on looks. It, sounds it was like. all based on looks. And you could tell by how they talk. You know, they were giving the, they looked like beauty queens. They so spoke you could, like beauty queens. you could queens. watch a video. Yes. Okay. You could read, you could look at pictures, watch videos. That's so like body language is a huge thing to me. Like you can listen to somebody, you can look at their picture, but once you see how they are, yeah. you know? So I found my egg donor through the normal surrogate, through the, through, through the normal donor list. And the two things that were important for me, one, she seemed really nice. Uh, you know, she was studying to be a nurse. It was anonymous, so I don't know her, mm -hmm. and she doesn't know who I am. Uh, but she seemed nice. She was studying to be a nurse, and she seemed and she was honest. Like she did also mention, you know, this will really help me financially. So I liked that. I liked all of the elements there, and I like to keep it real. I looked at her, and instantly there was like a connection. I'm like, I wasn't physically attracted to her, but it was like, wow, you look like you could be, you could be related to me. So I knew I'm like, oh, if I choose her to be my egg donor, then my kids are really going to look, gonna like, look like you. Yeah. And, and they do. Mm -hmm. so, they totally do. So then I set up, uh, uh, whatever we did back in 2013, I, I don't even know if it was zoom. It might've been some way that I was able to ask questions to her. It was like a FaceTime basically. But I had my sister ask her questions and I would then type the questions for my sister because I, I wanted to really remain anonymous. So she couldn't hear your voice. She couldn't hear my voice and know who it was. Yeah. And my sister's a very private person. Like nobody knows what she looks like. So. So 
what or has this already happened how what are the conversations like with your kids when they ask about their mom we've already had those conversations you know I, I, I explained the process in age appropriate ways. And basically, you know, the, the easiest way to be honest is just to be honest and you need to explain things. There's no, if you're honest, you don't even have to think about things. I was like, you know what? Your grandmother lives with you. Your family looks different than somebody else's family, but that's awesome. How cool. It's and, unique. Yeah. How special is it that your grandmother lives with you? But actually, it's not that unique because my grandmother lived with me too. It's a very Cuban, it's and a very Latino, Latino thing. Yeah. Totally. My grandparents lived with me. Um, you know, and, and and like basically my kid's mother is grandma. That's their mother. That should be your next book. I feel like this is like a sure. new thing. Like I think that there are more people like me and hopefully by talking about this out in the open, I mean, what year was that when you made that decision? 2013. That was, yeah, like you said, surrogacy was not even like commonplace. Well, I was 2012 that I began the process and my son was born in February of 2013, yeah. I feel like more people are going to be making decisions like this to have, to be a single parent and do it on their own. And I think that's one of the questions that people have in common is like, what am I going to tell them? And maybe you breaking it down, like in an age appropriate way, is like, that would be a book. I would buy that book. Yeah. I, I, I tell them that I loved them so much that I needed help, uh, in order to bring them here, you know, and, and straight people like you, like you're everybody can benefit from surrogacy and the advancements in technology. Like anyone that I've spoken to that has children, they don't ever say they regret having the kid. They say that they regret who they had the kid with. (laughs) But I would say it's always better to have more than you think you'd ever need. So freeze more eggs eggs, uh, than you think you'll ever need. Like do that extra round of the fertility drugs that they get. They have to pump you with fertility drugs so you ovulate more and you, you produce more eggs and all of that. Because... With my son, it was very easy. Boom, we got pregnant right away, first take. But with my daughters, it was multiple attempts because I only wanted a singleton, as it's called. Like I only wanted to implant one embryo at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's harder. That's one of the reasons why people that do IVF have a lot of twins, because if you implant two embryos, your chances of getting pregnant, either with both or one, are a lot higher. Yep. So when I'm pumping myself full of hormones to freeze my eggs, I might call you and It'll put, be worth put it. a little Maite on the line so I can remember why I'm doing <laughs> it. Flash forward to now, and you're creating Vegas-based content. Um, so can you talk about like the videos that you do? Because, and just for everyone listening who for some reason isn't following you, you do these like reaction videos, which I think is so smart because I feel like people were going to your blog to see... The, your reaction to things. And so when you're doing these reaction videos, it's so authentic. So I feel like, you know, I guess explain how the content has evolved. Uh, well, with regards to Vegas content, like I, I guess I'm like still in the paying my dues phase. Like I'm not, there's some Vegas influencers that are really monetizing it. Like I'm not anything you see that I share. It's, because I just went there because I really liked it or whatever it is. I'm not being paid to share this or paid to do that. Listen, I would love to like, 
but that's not happening yet. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that will come. For sure. Because I do bring value, I believe. Totally. Um, but thankfully, you know, I've been getting some paid hosting gigs, so that's nice. Uh, you know, I... Um, would love to do more of that and doing some charity gigs, but I'm happy to pay my dues. I'm happy to give back and do whatever to, to help a a nonprofit. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I I just love sharing my life. I'm, I'm I got my podcast. I'm an over share. (laughs) I love that. I mean, I feel like, like I said, the community has really embraced you. I enjoy your content both on the blog and your your Instagram. I think that's one of the reasons I moved here. You know, they have always embraced me. Similar to New York City, you know, um, in 2013, shortly after the birth of my son, I moved back to New York City for a few years and I loved it. I was always embraced by New York City because in New York, they have the history of the gossip, meaning the uh, the Michael Mustos, the Liz Smiths, the Cindy Adams, those r- tabloidish reporters that were a part of the scene, like and, personalities. But they were yeah. welcome in; mm-hmm. they were not excluded. Mm-hmm. In Los Angeles, you never were invited in. You know, you were always on the red carpet mentality. Mm-hmm. But in New York, it was like behind the velvet ropes. You were welcome in. And in Vegas, it's the same way. Like Vegas has always been very welcoming. And also Vegas has the history of the gossip reporter. You know, it's John Katzlamidis now, but before that it was Norm Clark. And that I love that you know your Vegas history. Yeah, that that person has always existed. And actually not even just in print, but um actually they kind of I remember there used to be a gossip reporter on TV. Um Alicia Jacobs, I believe, was her name. But then they, that station phased her out. Um, and don't not, forget Robin Leach, too. Right, Robin Leach. <laughs> but, but they still have like an entertainment show, The Moore Show on Fox. Yep. Um, so, yeah, the, it that personality has always been a part of Vegas culture. So now I'm here and it's like not shocking. <laughs> I think it's too like LA, everybody naturally wants to gravitate toward Hollywood, you know, where Vegas, like we want the, we want more people here. We want our community to be great and to all grow together. And so I think that's kind of why we, everyone just hold, holds hands. We play nicely in the sandbox. Everyone kind of embraces each other. So I think this is a great place for you to wind up. And what's great is, you know, Vegas is small, but there's so much opportunity here. Yeah, it's it's small, but big also. Yeah, it's to me, it's still like the city is a startup. Like we don't have as much um, history as as other cities. I'm very ambitious. Like, you know, I've not been here even a whole year yet, but there's so much that I want to do in the future. Like I'm trying to manifest a restaurant of my own. That would be great. If what, I can make... what would you have your dish that you you well, won the I'm best tr- of the worst <laughs> well i don't cook but i eat i'm a fatty so i know what good food is i'm trying to manifest a cuban restaurant that's so cool i think that there's a real void in the marketplace like there's not one single fine dining not even fine dining there's not one single wait staff cuban restaurant like there are a couple of cafeteria type places where you go up to the counter and you order food. It's more like a fast 
casual thing. Right. But it's not like you, you sit down at a table, a waiter comes, gets your order and then brings you your food. Brings your plantain chips. Yeah. There, there aren't those plates. There's not one, not a single one. So I would love to open up a Cuban restaurant. I've been trying to, like I've had a lot of meetings about it and it's been hard, but I'm not one to give up on an idea that I think is good. So trying to make that happen. And I know a publicist, so. Hey, um, (laughs) I'm, I'm, and I'm open to anything else. Like maybe some kind of, show like a a Vegas TV show or a Vegas stage show. You know, I did Chippendales in 2018 and that was a lot of fun. I would do something like my own show here or guesting in somebody else's show. I'm down and open to, like I said, Vegas is full of possibility and I'm, I'm wide open to whatever Vegas brings my way. Well, we're happy that you're here. Tell everybody where they can find you if they don't already know. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, I have my own, which you could check out at perezpodcast.com. And then if you start listening to my podcast and you really enjoy it, we signed, uh, I, we started a Patreon recently, which is patreon.com slash Perez Hilton. Of course, obviously my website, perezhilton.com. And then I'm all over social media and my, um, Instagram Vegas specific page is called Las Vegas Perez. And, um, yeah, I'm just so, you know, I'm so grateful that we had this time to chat because the world is crazy. Me too. And in this moment, you're just able to be present. That's right. What's great. My favorite part of doing a podcast is that both people are so locked in and engaged and like, we haven't looked at our phones yeah. the whole time. And another thing I keep bringing up your book, you guys have to, you also should listen to, I'm and it's about, you. I'm always a good marketer. So there's a, uh, uh, if you're interested in the book, you can go to perezhiltonbook.com for more information. Amazing. But in the book you're talking <laughs> and about. And I narrated the audio version. You narrated well. the audio. I did like a quick listen before you got here. Um, the whole book on Audible is four hours, by the way, I know that. Um, but you were talking about how you, your favorite part of traveling was the solo trips that you would take in the, was it a train, a train oh, yeah. ride? When I was in college, yeah. Because this is before cell phones, so you just had this time to yourself and, and I journal. And I would journal, and I would doodle, and I would write poems. It was a very creative time on those trains. But that's the point of like, I think life is figuring out like your times when you were the happiest and then making it a habit to do those things. And I've kept, I kept those journals. They're somewhere. Um, and I, and I came upon one not that long ago and I saw this journal from college where I talked about wanting kids. Crazy. Like I always knew that's full circle right there. And, um, I would have had more, I would have had a fourth stop fourth and final, but I can't afford that. (laughs) I know. I know. I don't remind me. I've heard it's very expensive, but you have three small miracles and I'm so every child is a miracle and a blessing. I'm, I'm so blessed and so thankful. And the best part about parenting really is them because my three kids are mine and my mother's. She really is the the mom Mm -hmm. and we're raising them in the same house, but they're each so different from each other and they're each so different from me. Like, it's really so special. It's like, wow, I get this. Like, you are your own person. It's not my job to mold you into who I want you to be. It's my job to guide you to being the best version of yourself. That's right. We're ending it on that. That was good. I'm so proud to know you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come in here.